Paul ha- is is telling is giving his point of view now in Romans three twenty uh, three to twenty one to twenty six, as in contrast with what the rabbis taught. There is a an, an enormously influential movement in Pauline studies these days. It's called the new new perspective on Paul. Um, its uh, primary exponents are now aging out of out of business. They're <laughs> they're on the verge of retirement. Uh, N. T. Wright or Tom Wright, you might have seen videos uh, at Easter talking about the the resurrection of Jesus and Tom Wright, who was a uh, the bishop. Yes, sir. Proponent, yeah. These these guys are teaching the new perspective on Paul, uh, N.T. Wright or Tom Wright, um, was a the bishop. Oh, he succeeded to the bishopric bishopric of uh, that B.F. Westcott had, and and dear me, really important uh, uh, scholars in the history of New Testament studies, uh, and then. The one who is is probably the I don't know quite how to describe him. He's probably the anchor of the new perspective movement. It's called his his name is James D G James D G Dunn. Uh, Dunn wrote a massive two volume commentary on Romans and uh, uh, very very excellent. Frankly, I. As I read his work, I thought, no wonder he's having so much influence. And Tom Wright is one of the most winsome speakers you will ever listen to. He is amazing. What a grand uh, speaker he is. I believe he's a brother in Christ. But he's just gone wild on this new perspective idea. And that is, it, it actually got its start back in the 1950s or 60s. Uh, and came to full flower sometime in the 1980s. Uh, but the idea is this. Uh, the, the Reformation has clouded our thinking about what Paul actually taught. The Reformation, and especially Luther, uh, was dealing with a, 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 a horrible problem of conscience. I don't know what you know about Luther uh, prior to his conversion. Luther... Uh, had a horrible problem of conscience. He would spend, what was his confessor's name? Um, I can't now recall. He was a monk, and he would go to his confessor and confess his sin, spend hours confessing his sin. And the, the man who was his confessor probably was a believer too. Um, and he would, he would uh, show him what Christ had done, and, and uh, assure him that God forgives sin. And, and Luther would leave the cell of his confessor relieved, uh, lightened. And on his way down the corridor, he would remember some more sins that he had not confessed, and he would go back in and, and start confessing again. And finally the man said to him, Brother Martin... Get out of here and don't come back until you've got some real sins to confess. Because <laughs> he was nitpicking everything in his life, uh, and it was so. So, um, the the charge is 
that modern Pauline scholarship has been enslaved to Lutheran views that are not biblical views. Uh, Something that would be appropriate in the 16th century may not be what Paul is writing about in the first. That, That should be obvious to us, yes? So... Dunn, especially, uh, James D.G. Dunn, D-U-N-N is his name. Um, I, I read his commentary and I thought, no wonder he's having so much influence. He's, he's such a good writer and a good thinker, just, I think, ro- dead wrong on, on these issues. Um, uh, Dunn's point is, Paul was not um, arguing with uh, legalism. He was, he was arguing with Jewish um, um, oh, I don't have a good word here. With, with a Jewish view that only people who are Jewish can be right with God and there are, there are certain what he called boundary markers that define who is right with God or who is Jewish. That, that's the better way to say it. All Jews are in a covenant relationship with God through grace, he taught. Um, and that's true. The Abrahamic covenant is, is, is grace, yes? And so they're, they're heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but there are three things, I, there are three, and I, I, think, I can think of two for sure, um, Sabbath-keeping, kosher, and what is the other one? Doesn't it doesn't come to my mind? But if you keep kosher and you keep Sabbath, uh, circumcision—that's the other one. Circumcision, uh, dietary laws, and Sabbath. If you have a good intention to keep those commandments, you're you're a good Jew, and you will participate in the kingdom at the coming of uh, of uh, God to establish the kingdom. Um, but Paul was not was not worried about keeping every last commandment. Uh, the interpretation that you have to keep all the law to be saved is simply a false point of view, and you shouldn't shouldn't embrace that. And so they have been rewriting commentaries on Psal- on, on Romans on Psalms, <laughs> maybe that too, but on, primarily on Romans and Galatians to to reflect this view. The problem is. As I get into the nitty-gritty of the book of Romans, Paul's talking about the law. Let me take you to one passage in chapter 3 that you know, and you know very well. Uh, hmm. Well, let's go to chapter 2, because now I can think of what I was trying to get to. Go to chapter 2. Verse one at uh, twenty one, we stopped at just a few minutes ago. The one who teaches another, do you teach yourself? The one who who preaches not to steal, do you steal? Well, that's not Sabbath keeping. That's not um, circumcision. That's not what's the third one? Dietary. A dietary law. It's not a dietary law. Are you with me here? Paul's concerned about more than. Just those three boundary markers. He's concerned. They're they're done and and right and many others who have followed them 
one of my former students is a guy named Michael Bird. This, this was when I taught at a small school in, in northeastern Australia years ago. Michael Bird was in this, but Bird is in this movement too. And they're saying, no, they're not worried about all the commandments. You don't have to keep all the commandments to be right with God. You just have to keep circumcision and dietary laws and Sabbath, and you're, you're okay. That's not what Paul is saying here. Um, and in Galatians chapter 5, if you'll look in Galatians 5, um, <clears throat> uh, verse 2, and we looked at this last in the last sessions. Uh, see, I, Paul, say this, I, Galatians 5, 2. See, I, Paul, say to you that if you are circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. I testify again to every man who is circumcised that he is a debtor to, he is obligated to do what? Keep the whole law. Whole law. So, so it's not just three commandments that are in view. It's the whole law. And so um, uh, that, that group has an enormous influence. You can't even imagine how deep their influence runs in um, uh, even in evangelical circles. Because uh, Wright is a great communicator, and he really is. I, I read the first book by Wright that I read was in India one year. Because I always take a book, I, I don't think I'll read any place else to India because I'll, I'll wake up at 3 in the morning and there's nothing to do. Nothing. You can't watch TV. It's in Hindi. <laughs> so so, um, so I take a book and I took N.T. Wright's book. Uh, um, I've forgotten now the time. The Climax of the Covenant is the name of the book. And started reading it and I, I commented to my traveling pa- partner, I said, I sure hope this guy's wrong because I disagree with him much of what he says. But he's clearly he, clearly a man who loves the Lord. Uh, and he writes so well. <laughs> it was it was just it was like savoring a really good meal to to read his writing. He's just such a good writer, and that very winsomeness has has influenced a lot of people. I think. Not to go back to Paul and actually pay attention. Yes, ma'am. There's a you know a lot of different groups that are doing that, and in some ways it seems legitimate to see if we yeah. find Western that's right under scripture. Absolutely. The idea, you know, reading some young theologians and kind of seeing what they're wrestling with, that they're wanting, okay, what really does scripture say? Mm-hmm. You know, which is yeah. a noble thing. Where do you think, like, did this group, did they, were they trying to find something in Scripture? Or no. what is their big... Yeah. Like, Descartes threw everything out and didn't have any, you know... That's right. And that's why he's so crazy. Yeah. Like, what's... There was a... I, boy, I wish I could remember more of the names at this point. Uh, there was a fellow in the the 60s who wrote a book on on Pauline theology he kind of kicked the whole thing off. And I, I'm sorry I can't remember the either the author or the book. But uh, part of his motivation was uh, how, do we, how do we as Christians teach Paul and not become anti-Semitic? So it was growing out of World War II and, and being confronted with what anti-Semitism looks like when it's, when it's at full flower. It's... 
it was Paul and John that the um, that the Nazis quoted, that the Catholics quoted, to say to the to the Jews that they were cursed and had uh, they were spawn of the devil and and they're Christ killers. See, so John was a major source of anti-Semitism. It was, it was falsely interpreted. But so this, I think, this was part of the a major part of the initial uh, movement toward this new perspective on Paul. Uh, D. A. Carson had a, a lecture that I listened to 20, 10, 15 years ago, and he said it's really not appropriate to talk about the new perspective. He said there are just new perspectives on Paul. So each one, each man does what's right in his own eyes. <laughs> but but they're trying to reinterpret Paul so that. Uh, we're not imposing Reformation categories improperly. But I don't think we are. I think Luther was struggling with the same thing you and I struggle with. Th- that author um, that I can't remember <laughs> um, talked about the uneasy conscience of the West. Um, so as Christians, we have uneasy consciences because we wonder... Um, if if we're Wesleyan, we wonder, did that sin cause me to lose my salvation? If we're Calvinist, we wonder, does that sin prove that I'm not really saved? You know, so we have this un- uneasy conscience of the West, and uh, so they're trying to to get away from that. It's a it's a laudable goal, not to read anti-Semitism out of the Bible. Yes, but. But to go this direction is the wrong way to go. Uh, so, and uh, in, in watching the the chosen, I'm encouraged by the fact that there are rabbis who are among the consultants for the uh, for the uh, uh, script and for the the plotting of the story. So they're not misrepresenting what rabbis talk about. Um, so this is. This is right in, in line. So Paul is now offering a different kind of righteousness. All this by way of just kind of review and introduction. <clears throat> we, we, uh, I'm, I'm told we got through to the end of chapter 3, uh, just before Christmas. So, um, I, and, by then, and by the way, there's a, a book titled, look at verse 27, chapter 3, verse 27, Where Then is Boasting? There's a book by a guy named Simon Gathercole. The title of it is Where Then is Boasting? And and uh, Gathercole is actually more on our side, though he's he's right in cahoots. He's colleagues with some of these guys that are in the New Perspective. Um, so um, you, you need to be aware of that. You you may not run into it much, but one, some of you might run into these new perspective ideas, and you need to know what that's all about and where it's going. Uh, so, uh, chapter 4, then, there are two things that we need to know about the salvation that God has given to us. Chapter 3 introduces both of them, especially verses 21 to 26. We are right with God because of the work of Christ. Okay? Yes? Yes? We're saved, as, as we read elsewhere, we're saved by grace. Ephesians 2. 
8 and 9. We're saved by grace through faith. So we need to know two things. We need to know what grace looks like and, and, and uh, how does the redemption, redeeming the work of Christ function in the grace of God. And they, he's addressed that in these last verses of chapter 3, especially in 321 to 26. But we've got to also know what faith is. And we've defined faith before, but here is where Paul comes and presses upon the reader. The whole of chapter 4 is pressing upon the reader what faith is and and what it looks like uh, so that we will understand what faith, what the role of faith in salvation is. One more word by way of reminder. Uh, I'm following... Uh, the guide of somebody whose name I've forgotten. I'm taking some supplements to try to help my memory, and it doesn't seem like it's working. I've been <laughs> counting on that to work. Um, oh, it's uh, C.E.B. Uh, C. Cranfield in his uh, very expensive two-volume commentary on, on Romans. Romans 1 to 8 breaks up into two parts. Um, uh, and and we we dealt with this. We addressed this back in chapter one, verse eighteen. That we read that verse: the the just by the just shall live by faith. Yes, that's a legitimate translation, and it it may be right. There's another that's possible: the righteous by faith shall live, and that's the way I'm taking it. So here we're looking at the uh, the first part, chapters one to four, are are laying out what it means to be righteous by faith. Chapters 5 to 8 will tell us what it looks like to live by faith, to, to, to live this way. Does this make sense to you, what the life of those who are right with God by faith is? So we've, we've dealt with the grace side of it here in chapter 3. In chapter 4, we're going to look at the faith side of it. What, what, is, what does this look like? So in chapter 4 now, um, let's see. Let me move on to that in the PowerPoint. Huh. In fact, we had not finished. Who was who was it said we hadn't finished chapter three? That's what I'm saying. I yeah. think Joe was right. I think we, uh... we well, we hadn't even finished twenty six. Because I put January twelfth at the head of this of this slide. That's where I'm supposed to be on January twelfth. Yay. Thank you, Jim. I did something right, just didn't remember that I did it right. The supplement's not helping. <laughs> I'm not sure that supplement is worth thinking. Uh, but but um, uh, we, need to, we need to think a little bit more. So let, let, let me go back now and tie us into 321 to 26. Let's just read it. But now... And I would propose reading this, a without law righteousness is revealed. You have um, a righteousness without law, and that's, that's adequate, and it gets the case across. But to talk about a without law righteousness is clearly making that without law an adjectival thing explaining what kind of righteousness it is. If I can't have righteousness by works, then... But I must have righteousness, and God has provided righteousness, and it's not a righteousness by works, then what is it? Well, it's a without works righteousness. And then he defines it a little more closely in verse uh, 22, a righteousness of God that God gives through faith. 
So it's a, it's a without law, through faith, without works, through faith, righteousness. Um, and then he begins to explain it all. Uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But those who sin and have come short of the glory of God can, in fact, be justified freely by his grace, and we dealt with that in some detail, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. These are all critically important points or concepts, and we spent some time with them. I've lost my place. Um, Through the propitiation which is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a as a uh, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation through faith, accomplished by His blood, for the demonstration of His righteousness, because He passed over sins committed beforehand in His forbearance, and for the demonstration of His righteousness, um, uh, even though He justifies those who are of faith of Jesus. So these, this is the means of justification. Um, what, what is forgiveness in this? The, the term doesn't occur, but it, it's there. So we have redemption, yes. We have propitiation. These are all looking at our, our plight from the point of view of, of God. Our plight is... In our sin, we have offended an infinitely righteous God. And in that act, we have incurred an infinite penalty. Um, It's almost like trying to pay off a credit card. It's infinite. (laughs) Uh, So, so... um, Say again, if you pay the minimum, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can if you can pay the maximum, you wouldn't have needed to have the credit card in the first place. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, since I have wronged an infinite God, then his wrath is infinite, and the penalty must be infinite, but, I, but I'm finite, and I must be always paying it. Um, what God has done, looking at it now from our side, is he has forgiven that, and we understand forgiving debt. Yes, in the, in the great parable Jesus tells, the, the, the woman, uh, Luke 7, comes in to wash Jesus' feet, and the, and the host says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman it is who's touching him, and she's a sinner. And Jesus tells that parable of the, of the two debtors, one host, host uh, 500, is it 500 denarii? And the other owes 50. A denarius is a day's wage. So 500 denarii would be something near to a year and a half salary. The other owes 50 denarii. So it's about 50 days work. Um, when neither one of them had the means to repay, he freely forgave them both. Well, we know what that means. What does it mean? Well, no. If if he forgives the debt, what does that mean? Hmm? He canceled the debt. Canceled the debt. Is it is it just that he he cancels the the principal, but there's interest still to pay? Yeah, cancels both principal and interest. You have no more need to pay. 
That's the point of forgiveness. So how does this look for us? What does this entail for us? Uh, and that's, uh, that's where this is going. I, I argue that there are three kinds of forgiveness. One is cancellation of eternal penalty of sin. So when you read about forgiveness in Scripture, think about one of these three categories. Um, the, again, the term is not used in this passage, but the concept is there. That's what redemption is about. Uh, uh, another penalty, another parable that Jesus tells in Luke. Uh, man owes this enormous debt. It's 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 worse than five hundred denarii. It's like 50, uh, 50 What is it? Five thousand talents or something like this. Huge. It's 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 an unimaginable sum. Uh, and he comes. The the, the master is going to throw him in prison. Make him pay everything. He says, oh, give me, give me time, I'll pay everything. And the master took compassion on him, forgave him completely. But then that man went and grabbed one of his fellow servants and, and who owed him just a pittance, and he, he was going to put him in jail for failing to pay. And the other, other servants of the master are upset, and they go to the master, and they tell him what this man's done. And he said, I forgave you all that debt because you asked me. Shouldn't you have forgiven your fellow slave? And he said he threw him into prison until he should pay every last dime. And, and uh, so will your heavenly Father do to you if you do not forgive each one his brother from your heart. So is this, what kind of forgiveness is this? Am I making sense to you? So there are three ways that we can talk about forgiveness in Scripture. One is the forgiveness the cancellation of the eternal penalty of sin. Second is the cance- cancellation of the temporal consequences of sin. What um, uh, I, I was I was in a group several years ago, and there was a man in that group. We we would go out. I, I taught a Bible study, and and we would go out to to coffee afterwards. Several of the men, and one of the men was really upset because. He had married a divorced woman, and so his church would not allow him to be an elder because he had married a divorced woman. Oh, the, the, the merits of that argument are neither here nor there for this present discussion. I don't, I don't want to get into that. Um, he said, what happened to forgiveness? And uh, part of the answer, folks, is um, God doesn't cancel all the consequences of our sin when he forgives us if he did our our sin would not be significant we would never learn anything we would never grow we would never learn to be careful about doing something because we never knew what it cost anybody certainly not ourselves does this make sense to you so in his forgiveness sometimes he cancels the 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 uh, temporal consequences of sin, but he doesn't always do that. Um, uh, the the, uh, the man John chapter nine, whom Jesus healed, remember this at the pool of Bethesda. Um, the Jews found him later. Who who, who is this that? told you to pick up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. 
and he, the guy didn't know his name. Jesus came and found him, and he said, uh, uh, go and sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Uh, that would suggest that this man was there in some measure because of some sin in the past, and and there are consequences temporally to some sins. Yes? Um, in raising children, you, you face this. Am I going to deliver my kids from all the consequences of their folly? If you do, they'll never know wisdom. Yes? Part of the problem of our day, is it not? <laughs> so, so God doesn't c- cancel all the, the consequences of our sins, He forgives us the eternal penalty, but he may ask us to go through some of the temporal consequences. He may cancel many of the temporal consequences, but not all. Uh, And then third, perhaps a third category of this is permission to enter into the kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter uh, 6. This is a tough verse, and there are teachers who who, te- who use this for strange goals. Uh, this is right after the, uh, the the Lord's Prayer, verse fourteen. For if you forgive people their their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And if you do not forgive people, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And there's a well known. Preacher who says, You can't be saved if you don't forgive others. What do you think of that? You can't even start in salvation unless you've forgiven others. What do you think? Well, what's Jesus mean? Because he quotes these two verses. And you would know him if, if, I, if I named him, so I'm not going to name him. Um, there, there are a couple of problems with that view. Uh, what does salvation mean? When, when somebody asks, talks about salvation, what, are they, what, what do they mean? Being saved from something. Yeah. In our yeah, and especially theologically, what do we mean? From being saved from sin. Yeah. So being born again, being justified. Right? Are you saved? When we ask the question, are you saved? That's the question we're asking, isn't it? Um, she'll look hard and long in Matthew to find anything about being born again or about being justified. Um, and surely not by faith. So that Matthew can talk about salvation um, goodness. Oh, the rich young ruler <laughs> comes in, in, the, in the different gospels where his, his story is told. He asks the question differently in, in, in different places. Um, at one point he asks, what may, must I do that I may inherit eternal life? When does he think et- eternal life is coming? In the uh, after he's passed. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, perhaps the kingdom even as a Jew because they don't have a huge 
concept of life after death. There's not a doesn't play a large role. They they assume that there's some kind of existence, but they don't talk much about it. So, uh, the coming of, of of the kingdom is the is the time of the of salvation. That's when eternal life is. For so so in some places in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, salvation is a refer a reference to what's coming eschatologically not in the next two days or three weeks or or this afternoon when you pray the prayer it's it's something that's coming way in the future and we can anticipate that uh this is what matthew is talking about as far as i can tell matthew never thinks in terms of salvation in reference to new birth and justification new birth is a category that john introduces uh, so why did if there are already three good gospels out there why does John write because there are some things that, that folks need to know about that weren't in the three gospels uh, so in Matthew here look look in, in fact a little earlier in Matthew chapter 5 um, verse 20 for I tell you Unless your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. So when he's talking about salvation, he's not talking about how do I get born again Sunday morning in the in the in the invitation <laughs> if if you still attend a church of that sort. Yes, sir. Would it be fair to say that Matthew's still too hung up on the on his Judaism? No, he's not too hung up on it. He's expressing this is this is the gospel for Jews. That's what, that's yeah. What, that's what I was yeah. So he's he's communicating in terms they will understand, but for them the kingdom is eschatological, and so he's talking in eschatological terms. So, yeah. So back to Romans. I'm sorry, Matthew uh, six fourteen. Uh, first of all, six fourteen and fifteen. First, um, getting forgiveness may not be tied specifically to being born again in this passage, but rather what the, what the prayer, what's the first word in verse 14 in your text? Four. Four. So he's explaining something. All right? Part of what he's explaining is um, verse 12. Forgive us our, our uh, obligations uh, as we also have forgiven those who are obligated to us. But do notice verse 10. What do you read? Your kingdom come. So it's an eschatological. And, and we had that in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We have it now in the middle in the, in the, in the prayer. And the two verses that are explaining the prayer, at least starting to explain the prayer, are drawing on those same categories. Does that make sense to you? Secondly, people say, well, but it says your father. So if, if, if God is their father, then they must be born again and they must be children of God. Except that when Peter addresses non-believing Jews in Acts chapter 2, he calls them brothers. Does that mean they're all believers and, and born again and saved and going to heaven? Heaven bound. <laughs> no, it means they're Jews. Are you with me? And this happens right through the book of Acts. Watch that next time you're reading Acts. Watch for 
the apostles addressing Jewish people and calling them brothers. And they're not even believers, but he calls them brothers. Am I making sense to you? God is the father of Israel. And so every Israelite is a child of God in that sense. That's not an indication that they've been born again. So um, what is this that it's talking about then? I'm arguing that the forgiveness that Jesus is offering is permission to enter the kingdom. Uh, Look back at chapter 5 once more. Verse 20, folks, is a whole lot more important than than being 20th in a series of 20 (laughs) would suggest. Uh, um, Look at the Beatitudes for just a minute. Give me some of the Beatitudes. Spirit, born, yeah. What are the benefits that that come to people who are poor in spirit, who are kingdom of heaven? Enter the kingdom of God. Hmm. Kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven more often than kingdom of God. Um, Wonder if he's talking about the same thing at the beginning, as he's talking about in verse twenty, and as he's talking about in the sermon. In the in the Lord's Prayer and in the exposition of the Lord's Prayer, am I making sense to you at all? That He's saying this is what it's going to take to get into the kingdom, and it's going to have to be a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. We don't we don't take that very seriously. But when when the Jews who the Jewish people who were listening to Jesus preach this sermon the first time, when they heard that, how would that strike? How would that statement strike you if you were one of them? They would probably go, who can be saved then? Where's hope for anyone? If the Pharisees are not going to get in, how's anyone going to get in? Um, Look now at at the end of the sermon, chapter 7. There are four paragraphs that end the sermon. Um. Verse 24. I'm sorry. uh, Yeah, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Verse 25. For this reason, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 6. Chapter 7. That was a good verse. I I like it. But uh, chapter 7, verse 13. Um, Enter by the narrow gate. We've got two gates two ways and two destinations in that in that paragraph yes what is the what is the broad gate and the easy way destruction that's what it leads to but that's not what it is what is the broad gate and the easy way do it the way I want, doing God's work the way I want it done yeah and specifically the way of the pharisee uh, the pastor I grew up under, wonderful man, uh, but didn't know much Bible, <laughs> uh, said the, the broad gate and easy way is the way of sin. Well, no. Nobody ever goes on the way of sin thinking they're going to get to the kingdom. Yes? But every society on earth has standards and if you live up to the standards, you're more honored in the society. And if you, if you violate the standards, you lose honor in the society. Is that true? 
Is that true even of criminal society? Yeah. Then where'd that come from? Uh huh. And we were created to obey. But now we've turned obedience into a way of serving ourselves. <laughs> All right, am I making sense to you? So, so uh, the broad gate and easy way is the way of keeping the law. But the Pharisees haven't learned to keep the law yet. Um, verse. Uh, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing inside their thieving wolves. By their fruit you shall know them. So we've got two kinds of trees. One kind, one tree creates, so I've got two ways. Yes, in the first, got in the second paragraph I've got two trees. Good tree produces good fruit, bad tree produces good fruit. Good fruit, good tree can't produce bad fruit. Bad tree can't produce good fruit. By their fruit you shall know them. Third paragraph, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Um, so, so I've got many who claim to have relationship with Christ on the one hand, but don't. Others who have a relationship with Christ. So I've got two, two, and two so far. Yes? Um, Verse 24, um, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them shall be like a man who, uh, a wise man who built his house on a rock. So we've got two houses, two foundations, a catastrophe that washes away one house and not the other. So what are the two ways? What are the two trees? What are the two kinds of profit? What are the two kinds of construction that we're looking for? One is the Pharisee. And the other is the follower of Jesus. There's a crucial statement there in verse 21 that we turn into a, a means of, of exhorting people to obedience. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, what, is, what does Matthew show us doing the will of the Father looks like. Do you have any ideas where to go? What chapter is this? Seven. Seven? You know, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And almost always, if there's a chapter seven, there's a chapter eight. (laughs) What if you looked at at chapters eight and nine? Um, and 10, by the way, 8, 9, and 10. In 8 and 9, he does three sets of three miracles, each of which is followed by, I say, yeah, I think that's right, each of which is followed by some kind of teaching on discipleship. Then in chapter 10, he sends... The, the disciples out to do the same things he's been doing in chapters 8 and 9. Turn to chapter 11. Um, uh, it came to pass when Jesus completed all these 
uh, uh, completed these, uh, commanding his his uh, twelve disciples, uh, they he departed from there uh, to teach and to preach in the in their towns. Um, John, hearing in prison the works of Messiah, why did he do three sets of three miracles? How much testimony is necessary in court to establish the truth of a of a claim, according to Jewish law? Two or three witnesses. Jesus gives three evidences three times. He triples the 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 the, uh, the, the, the three, and then he sends the disciples out doing the same things, so that so that the the region is. Covered with the testimony of the Messiah. John hears the, the uh, works of the Messiah in prison. And he sends through his disciples and he said, Are you the one who is coming or are we to wait for another? And in response, Jesus said to them, Go, tell John what you see. The blind see. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Uh, so he, he comes back and reiterates this. So you got three sets of three miracles. What if you looked in the three sets of three miracles for someone who does the will of God? Look at the three. At, look at chapter uh, eight. What's the first? Um, the first miracle: cleansing a leper. Um, uh, does this man do the will of God? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, look at verse uh, 4. He, Jesus said to him, See that you tell nobody, but go show yourself to the priest and, and, and uh, offer this, the, the gift which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Here we don't know. We don't know what he did. What's the second miracle? Heals the centurion servant. Centurion servant. That's going to be Quintus in the in the uh, uh, the chosen. Quintus is going to be the centurion who asked for the healing of his servant. We are already getting Jairus in the story with with uh, episode uh, four. Um, what is the, what? What's the result of this? Look look through that story. What happens? Authority, yeah. Over men, yeah. And he has faith in Christ. Yes. Specifically, you don't need to come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you in my house, but I know what authority is because I'm under authority and I have men under me. Speak with a word. I'm getting chills going up my back. <laughs> Speak with a word, and my servant will be healed. Verse ten. Look at this. And Jesus hearing was amazed and he said uh, in no and see uh, I've lost my place hearing was amazed and he said to those who were following in truth I tell you in no way have I found such faith in Israel what does it mean to do the will of the father that's what it means are you with me here so it's not an act of obedience that we're, that we're pressing here. question that I'm opposing, opposing in all of this discussion is, 
what does forgiveness mean in Matthew 6, 14 and 15? It, it will not precisely be canceling of eternal penalty of debt. Matthew's not there yet in his, in his revelation that he's giving. Um, it will not necessarily be the cancellation of the temporal consequences, though it might be. Matthew doesn't necessarily use that that way. But forgiving one another is a condition of getting into the kingdom, not of being born again. So when you have forgiven, you are given forgiveness to enter in the kingdom. Does this make sense to you? Permission to enter the kingdom. Am I making sense to you? Say again? Get the past. The point, folks, is that forgiveness is used in all three of these ways. The third is is very rare. I don't find it very often. Um, James chapter 5, If is anyone sick among you, let him send for the elders, let him come and anoint him with oil, and the prayer of faith will raise him up. And if he has committed any sin, it will be forgiven to him. That's a possible passage for uh, the second category on the screen there, cancellation of, of temporal consequences of, of sin. Do you follow me here? All right. So stop thinking in terms of forgiveness the way we've always thought about it as a simple one kind of thing, always uh, I'm forgiven. But what does it mean to forgive, frankly? Well, if you are forgiven, uh, turn to uh, Ephesians. Yes, Ephesians 4. Oh, that's Corinthians. <laughs> um, well, that's not as good a verse as I'd like it to be. So let me maybe go to Colossians 3. In fact, it's probably Colossians 2 that I want here. Turn to Colossians 2. It's a good verse, that Ephesians 4 verse it is, but um, 2.13. You who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made us al- made you alive together with him, having forgiven you. Now, how many transgressions are involved in that all? And don't say all. Every one of them. All right, let me ask a more important way then. All your past transgressions? And future? Yeah. Well, now that would just set you free to sin. That's the big problem. Note, notice, folks, that Paul apparently is setting the, uh, the, the foundation for us to understand this. You preach grace, you're going to be charged as setting people free to sin. Don't we have a new disposition, though? Yes, but you're going to be charged with this. Whether, whether, whether that they, you see... Folks who hear grace hear it as permission to sin more. That's that's my point. But you're going to get to that in Romans. Right? Yeah, we're going to get that at some point in the next decade. Uh, yeah. Well, what is the role of obedience? It's the result of the relationship. You cultivate the relationship, and from it flows the behavior. 
You don't cultivate the behavior in order to get the relationship or to keep it strong. Your behavior, your, your folks. See, see, folks say, "Well, no. If you, if God forgave all your future sin before you even did it, then that would just set people free to sin more. Because, hey, it's a license to sin. I got get out of jail free card." Uh, but folks think you didn't have any sins that were not future when Jesus died. So the only sins He could die for you are future. Then it has to be not only past and present, but all future sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. This is radical forgiveness. That means, number one, you have permission to get into the kingdom. Number two, it means that the, that the eternal penalty of sin is paid. See, the difference between that the master who reimposed the debt and what God does is that the master didn't get any just payment for canceling the debt. He just simply, out of mercy, canceled the debt, but there was no just action. In the work of Christ, there is justice satisfying the complete just demands of God against our sin, completely satisfied in what Jesus has done. There can be no more reimposition of the penalty because then Jesus paid us a fair amount, <laughs> a good deal to him I owe. Sin had left us crimson stain, he washed it pink. Or Jesus paid it all. And in one sense, that song is right, all, all to him I owe. In another sense, it's absolutely wrong. I owe him nothing. Um, you're... you're you are the favored grandchild in your family. Your grandmother dotes on you, and she gives you the exact present for Christmas you were longing for all year. She knew. And you come to her and say, Grandmother, how much, how much do I owe you for this? What can I pay you? What's she going to say? Nothing you got. Yeah. <laughs> right. Depends on your grandmother, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, my grandmother would have been brokenhearted. Why would you even think I wanted a payment for this? Um, so I owe nothing. Yes, sir. Why is one and three not the same thing? One of them is negative, the other is positive. Mm -hmm. Aren't they coincidental? They work to the same, yeah, they work to the same goal, but they focus on different things. One is, um, uh, do I still have penalty hanging over me? Folks, we probably need to talk about the difference between penalty and discipline. Uh, punishment and discipline. H have, have we talked about that together? Yes, sir. But the other thing is, you said, well, if all our sins are forgiven, then people would say, well, then I have carte blanche to sin. No, yeah. because number two, Still is in effect. Mm -hmm. And there are consequences, yeah. There's still consequences. And the good news is that mm -hmm. the good news is that God uses those consequences for our good. Discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, pardon? Suffering. I can't hear you. Suffering. Suffering, yeah. Hardships uh, that come because of our sins are things that God uses for our good. 
So it's good of him not to cancel all the consequences. But he has canceled our debt because it's been paid in full. And he and we now have permission to enter into the kingdom, not simply bare permission, you've got the ticket, you can get in. It's that we belong in the kingdom because we are in Christ. We're one with him. And if he could be excluded, I can be excluded. If he can't be excluded, I can't be excluded if I'm in him. Yes? Because yeah, I have a little problem with number three, using the word permission. Yeah. Permission implies that it still may or may not happen. That's right. But now is that I've made. Yes, for us. But in the sermon, that's, I think that's the point in the sermon. For a Jew in the first century listening to Jesus, they can they can get permission to enter the kingdom. One of the one of the conditions of that is forgiving forgiving others. You, you see, so well it's after twelve thirty or one thirty. It's after twelve thirty two, but uh, it's after one thirty and it's time to stop. So let's uh, stop and we'll pick up at this point. Um, we'll we'll move on to twenty seven to thirty one and finish out chapter three next week. Yes, sir. So do I understand we're doing one slide a week now? Yeah, well, not intentionally. <laughs> but, but folks, listen, we've used these, these words all our lives. If you grew up in church, you've used these words all your life. How many times have you had, heard, heard anybody really sit down and define them? You know, you, you might get a quick definition and move on. But, folks, this is too important for us to just gloss over, well, this means this, this means that, this means this, and we move on. It's, it, it's important that you see the biblical ground for it and that you begin to sense, all right, what's this look like? Just like what does it mean to do the will of the Father in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 7. Well, chapter 8 shows us somebody who does the will of the Father and is not keeping the commandments. You see my point? If we don't so, understand it, we sort of can't convey it. And can't convey it, that's right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for... This powerful book, it's astonishing. Um, and it's astonishing to me that we can go a whole lifetime in church and, and still not really hear these things. Um, help us grasp them so that we can help others. Father, there, there are people who we fellowship with in church on Sundays who are struggling in their spiritual lives and they don't know why and they don't know how to deal with sin in their lives they, they, they've been told things but that doesn't seem to, to, to set our fears and our dreads aside so Father give us opportunities to share these things so that they can be encouraged in their faith and become healthy saints we thank you that you have done all this for us We're just beginning to understand it. I certainly am. But it sets me free, Father, when you remind me of these things. So so give us hope as we walk in our daily lives this next week until we come back and can fellowship again around your word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.